The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. Thank you, Lord, for everything good, beautiful, true, lovely, noble. Thank you for faith and hope, love for peace, patience, kindness, joy, self-control. Thank you for your uh, willing sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for your glad-hearted, joyful strength that you provide for us. Thank you for weeping with us when we weep. Thank you for not being trite. Thank you for not being a simpleton or a fool or a scoffer. Thank you for everything. We give you praise and we ask now for your Holy Spirit to lead us in this hour. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. In our first session, we basically reminded ourselves of this, the presence that the wisdom literature of the Bible leads us to when we're uh, sitting with one another to counsel one another, or when we're engaging circumstances of life. One of the things we reminded ourselves, in essence, is this, that the prophet, the prophetic voice, and the silent treatment of judgment are not the default position of God. It's often our default position, but it's not His default position. And in essence, we reminded ourselves that the Lord never talked to the woman at the well, never talked to Zacchaeus the way He talked to the Pharisees. There's a difference. And uh, learning uh, to recognize that difference slows us down. And we looked a great deal at how the wisdom literature slows us down to offer a human creaturely presence with another human being and engage the world under the sun as it's presented to us. Today we want to continue to think about the talk that wisdom uses. And uh, as we do so, uh, it's uh, going to be a little foreign to us. Uh, Just as uh, a prophetic uh, posture of direct speech is our assumption, by and large, Uh, the wisdom literature assumes that we're listening talkers. We're listening talkers. We talk as those who have first listened. Um, So I'm in 1 Kings chapter 4. It's in the Old Testament there. And it's telling us about Solomon. I want to just start here and uh, imagine that, that Solomon, King Solomon, was hosting a conference And you signed up for that conference, and you were going to go hear King Solomon in his conference, and he has wisdom unlike any other. People are coming from all over, Queen of Sheba, everybody else, ethnically diverse, coming to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And I wonder, if you registered for a conference to hear the word from Solomon, what you'd be expecting. So what it would be like is something like this. You know, you get there Thursday night, registration's Friday morning. And um, uh, the first session is uh, Solomon giving you a poetry reading. Because it tells us that he spoke 3,000 proverbs. So Solomon's wisdom uh, led him to write poetic speech. So you have a bunch of poems, a bunch of riddles, a bunch of proverbs, 3,000 of them. Maybe he shares 15 or 20. I don't know. But that's your first thing. Then you think, hmm, I was really wanting to meet, you know, 
like, like the word. So then you have a break. Uh, second session, he's having a talk about lizards. <laughs> particularly the lizards peculiar uh, to that part, particular to that part of the region. Then you have lunch. You're a little discouraged because you were really wanting the meat of God's, God's word, you know. So the afternoon, another talk on trees. <laughs> a break, another talk on fish. Because uh, he spoke, it says in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. Now that makes sense. Because if you have the wisdom of God and that God created all things, then you're going to know stuff about all of life. But you're still wanting some kind of expository message. <laughs> so you're wondering if he's a little new agey. Is he, is he liberal? Is he kind of soft? You know, what's happening? So you're thinking, ah, the final session Thursday night. And you go there and he's singing for you. It's an evening with Solomon singing you his songs. Because he wrote 1,005 of them, it says. He was like his dad. He was a songwriter. So he's just singing you songs that he wrote. And uh, you and I are accustomed uh, to, we're not accustomed to thinking like this. That the wisdom of God not only addresses your soul, but it addresses all of reality. All of life. We could say it this way, God knows how to use an iPad. God uh, has seen every Star Wars movie. If you were to have a Sunday morning news show and you wanted to get the expert on economics, God would be the one. The expert on geopolitical diversity and global realities, it would be the God of the Bible. Um, God's not like an old man trying to keep up with technology. <laughs> Remember, God's the one that told Jonah about what's going on in Nineveh. Remember, God's the one that taught Daniel and his friends the literature and the language of the Babylonians. This is my father's world. So Solomon, uh, and, and it just says, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, his songs, his proverbs, his lectures on trees. <laughs> what is the beautiful purple tree that you guys have here? I've never seen this in my life. What's it called? Jacaranda. Jacaranda. I will look that up. I've never seen that in my life. It's stunning. I found myself at a 7-Eleven looking at a jacaranda. <laughs> I'm from the Midwest. I've never seen that. God created that tree. Wow. So, uh, wisdom speech covers all of life. Remember we were talking about how um, when you're going to just talk to another than Christian person and you're trying to figure out what to talk about, just talk about life. Because we all saw the same headlines, the same 7-Eleven, and the same jacaranda. 
whether we're a Muslim, a Hindu, an atheist, or no matter who we are, as a human being, we're in the same world under the sun. And so here's Solomon talking about all of life. Now, um, when we're thinking about that kind of speech, um, wisdom speech, uh, it might help us to remember something that C.S. Lewis said in his Language on Religion. It's an essay called Language of Religion, or Language on Religion. It's probably Language of Religion. He said there are three kinds of language. The first kind of language is um, scientific. Second kind of language is ordinary. Third kind of language is poetic. We need all three, he says. Uh, scientific language is precise language. It's uh, two degrees Fahrenheit. Ordinary language is cold. Right? Do you guys know what I'm talking about out here? Let's see. It's, um, <laughs> it's uh, what, 55 degrees Fahrenheit or something? That's cold? All right, now we're talking. All right, 55 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> That's right, 55 degrees. It's cold. Uh, but now imagine um, uh, that you're going to spend some time in St. Louis, and you've never been there, and it's January, and you've lived in San Diego all your life, and you haven't traveled much. So it's your first time um, in uh, St. Louis. Let's say it's November. And you're just really, really ordinary speech, like really, really cold. And, um, and someone's trying to tell you that, yeah, it's cold, but it's going to get colder. You know, you're already wrapped up in everything else. Poetic speech is, is the, it gives you the experience of the thing. If I say, you know what, it's going to get down to negative eight wind chill factor tonight. That's precise language. That doesn't give you the experience if you've never had it. You have no idea what I'm talking about. If I say it's going to get freaking cold, that's ordinary language. It doesn't give you the experience because you've never had it. So poetic speech, Lewis says, is the language that gives us the experience of a thing. So he quotes in his English fashion, you know, uh, even an owl with all of its feathers was numb, you know. But we might say, you know that coat you're wearing right now? It's going to be like a screen door. Uh, it's going to be like a door back and forth. And the cold is going to mount in a fence and surround you. And it's going to invade your body. And the cold is going to make you shiver. And you don't even know why, and you can't stop it. It's like the walls of your body are being breached. <laughs> I don't know. Poetic speech. Poetic speech. It gives you the experience of a thing. Now, when you look to the Bible, uh, certainly there's the language of precision. The Apostle Paul, for example, will make an argument on the basis of the singular versus the plural use of the word seed. Seed versus seeds, and builds an entire theological argument on that. It's pretty precise language. Book of Romans, pretty good extended linear argument going on there. Ordinary speech, Jesus wept. Uh, he got in a boat, went down to Jericho. Poetic speech, the devil is like a lion, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. As we said in our last time, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There was a father who had two sons. 
there was a, a, a um, there are two kinds of houses. You build one on sand, you build the other on a rock. When the fl- floods and the rains come, this is all poetic speech. The Lord Jesus uh, um, regularly, continually uses poetic speech. If, uh, if your eye sins, pluck it out. If your arm leads you to sin, cut it off. This is all poetic speech, metaphor, simile, etc. Uh, as we mentioned, you go 23 chapters, two, two and three quarter years before you hear Jesus say, woe to you. So his dominant mode of, of the way the Lord addresses us is in this ordinary and poetic speech. Are we thankful for precision? Absolutely. Uh, my youngest has a peanut allergy. I'm really glad that a pharmacist and an emergency room knows the precise use of an EpiPen and uh, how much medicine's in that EpiPen plus whatever else they're going to do with the Benadryl and all that kind of stuff. I'm very thankful for precision. Uh, um, but the precision can't give us the experience of a thing. I'm going to add a fourth kind of language, to, if, I, if I can be so bold, uh, with, with him. So scientific um, and ordinary and poetic. I guess, uh, um, and that's just, um, yeah, silence. <laughs> uh, uh, presence. Nonverbal presence, just being with. Job's friends communicated a whole lot before they opened their mouths. Job's friends, when they first came to Job in the midst of his situation, they said nothing. They were present, with, sat in the ashes. They felt with him. They were with him. They didn't explain anything. They didn't say anything. They didn't try to fix anything. They didn't try to know anything. And if they would have just stayed that way, they would have been in a pretty good position (laughs) to offer comfort. I want to say that wisdom teaches us that silences are as important as sentences. Not silent treatments. Not the punishment of silence. But the, the humble presence of waiting the language of waiting, of being with you without saying much. This comes from another place, Job's friends, another place you might think of this is in the book of James. We are, uh, James is a New Testament wisdom book. We are quick to listen and we're slow to do two other things. What's the two other things? Speak and grow angry. Yep. Speak and vent. I did not grow up with anything like what we are talking about right now. I knew nothing about these things. Uh, quick to listen. That verse is uh, just as biblical as justification by faith alone, just as biblical as uh, the Word of God being inspired, just as biblical as any other verse that you think is the most important verse in the Bible. It's just as biblical. You and I are to be quick to listen. Well, right there, I need Jesus because I need a Savior who pays for me. That's why He died on the cross for me. 
He died because I am not quick to listen. He died for you because you don't listen. And he does. It's the heart of God. He purchased a listening posture for you on the cross. He gave it to you and me. Be quick to listen. This isn't, uh, um, f- f- there might be someone here who doesn't ever like to talk, and they're thinking, wow, this is awesome. And <laughs> they say, watch out, watch out. There is a time to be silent, the wisdom tells us. But there's a time to speak. Yes. And uh, there is a kind of heart or situation in which we can use this to justify our cowardice or to justify our disengagement. To justify, as we looked at last time, our symbolism, our simple, our simplistic heart. That's not what's happening. Quick to listen. That means we don't speak. That means we don't say the first thing we think. <laughs> we don't say the first thing we think, even if it's right. <laughs> Let's just chew on that for six months. Thank you for coming. <laughs> This isn't me. It's just the word. We're all adults. Take it on. See if you disagree. It's right there. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Which means the thoughts that I'm having, I'm not going to blurt out. Now there's someone, uh, maybe someone here from a particular generation, just a bit younger than me. And for you, it feels inauthentic if you don't say everything you feel or think. So authenticity means anything you think, you say it because you're just being honest. I just want to gently say that's foolish. The Bible actually calls that folly. As we hinted at last time, it's the fool who shares everything they think. Wisdom uh, takes into account who they're speaking to and whether or not they should say something or not according to the posture of their soul. Are they a simpleton? Are they a wounded soul? Are they a foolish soul? Are they a scoffer? and responds accordingly. So we're going to be slow to speak. Thanks be to God for a Savior, because He purchased. He died because we are quick to speak. He died to pay for that, to forgive you for it, to free you from it. And slow to vent. And this is the, the most, uh, uh, the most, uh, what? Uh, It's one of the strongest emotions. Slow to vent anger. I feel it. Therefore, you're going to get it. No, no, no. (laughs) But I'm right. doesn't matter. It doesn't justify using the fruit of the flesh. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Now, you may not find yourself in any of those categories. And uh, you, we're in good company, but I'm telling you that by the grace of God, there's real hope in our life. And we grow and we learn. Wisdom speech trusts silences, full, attentive silences, waiting, lingering, discerning, hearing what's being said. The fool can't do that, the fool just reacts. Anger, defense, can't handle a negative emotion. The fool is the one who says, you can tell me anything, but you know you can't. 
You've tried that before. What, the, what that person means is, tell me anything positive and tell me anything good about me. But if you have anything negative about me or you feel anything that I can't control, I'm going to react. That's folly. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to vent. We're just listening talkers. We speak out of first having heard. And isn't this what our Lord Jesus just said about himself? He speaks, he says, what he hears his father say. Well, uh, already, I hardly know what to do with what we're talking about right now because our uh, cultures inside and outside of the church right now, this does not describe us. We're just saying woe to you to everybody. Doesn't matter if it's the woman at the well. Doesn't matter if it's Zacchaeus. Doesn't matter. Indistinguishing. Woe to you. Silent treatments. Venting. Speaking what we think. And we feel as if we're compromising. That's the lie of it. If I don't speak quickly, if I don't get my anger out there, I've compromised. I just want to ask you, where are you getting that doctrine from? Who says? Who has taught you that if you don't say the first thing on your mind as quickly as possible with full force, you're a compromiser? Who's taught you that? What Bible verse will you show me? A double dog dare you. <laughs> That's from the 80s. <laughs> double dog. Quick to listen, slow. So this is our Lord's posture. What this leads us to, we've already talked about how we have the need for direct speech. Matthew 23, we looked at it plainly. Woe to you. We've already talked about how the foolish soul needs confrontation. And how do we discern how to do that? So we're already assuming there's a time and place to say in a direct way, um, I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're neither, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Those are Jesus' words. We've already talked about how there's some of us who would never think gentle Jesus would ever talk like that, and we need help in that direction. But in my experience, that's not most of us, uh, at least as in the evangelical world that I'm a part of. In my experience, most of us need the opposite, that Jesus doesn't default with direct speech, his default is indirect speech. Listening talk leads us to indirect speech when we're dealing with the, four, with the kinds of souls that we mentioned yesterday. So our topic now, we've just left our introduction and we're getting into what we're actually talking about. How do you spell speech? There we go. <laughs> and uh, um, so indirect speech, what is it? How do we do it? And how does it apply to each of the four kinds of souls that we were talking about? We talked about the wounded soul, the sim simplistic soul, the foolish soul, 
and the, the, the scoffing or mocking soul. What is indirect speech? How does it work? And how does it apply to each uh, kinds of soul? Really, if you need to leave, because the whole idea of learning how to be learning slow, uh, quickness to listen, slow to speak, is just undoing your soul right now, because you've not, that's just not been a part of you, I guess we'll all know it's you walking out, so never mind. I was just going to say, it's okay to go and walk the grounds and cry out to God. You can, you can watch this later, you know. So feel free if you need to do that. Um, uh, indirect speech. Here's some biblical examples of it, just to get us going with what it is. Uh, indirect speech starts out here with the telescope or the binoculars. And then uh, it uh, gives you the stethoscope, or it hits a little button on your smartphone so you, the picture's looking right at you. Starts out here, gradually, gradually to you. So the Lord Jesus, uh, uh, why, why might an indirect speech approach be important in life? It's biblical, first of all, but also because if I go directly at you, what's, what, what is our default position if someone comes to defense? Yeah, most of us are foolish, <laughs> you know, but even wisdom, even, even the, the wise among us, defense, that's our first default response. Uh, even if it's someone we love, especially if they're right. I don't want you to be right, right? That's not the way to talk to me or whatever it is. So, so I don't know. We all know that. If you just ask it, what's our first default? Everybody, defense. So I don't know why we think that our default posture in communication and counseling and preaching and teaching should be direct at the will. We all just said by experience, and we would know biblically, that our natural is to defend. There's a time and place for it. Woe to you. But it's not the norm. The norm is indirect speech from our Lord Jesus. So the Lord Jesus says, um, who do people say that I am? So now you're looking out here. People. Yeah, what do they say? Who do people say that I am? You talk about that for a little bit. Hmm. Who do you say that I am? Um, imagine... Uh, um, imagine, you know, the most probably well-known one, Nathan coming to King David. Nathan comes to confront King David, who's in the midst of his own folly. Hey, David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. David sees, him, sees the story, enters the story. What? Outraged. Going to tear that guy from limb to limb. Uh-huh. Okay. King, you're that guy. That is not weak. 
That is full-on confrontation. It took profound courage for Nathan the prophet to say that to the king. Courage is not equated with direct yelling. Boldness in the Bible isn't, isn't tied to a tone of voice. Do you know that? You can look it up. We're adults. Uh, the word for bold. Start with Acts chapter 4. When uh, the folks are praying for boldness, after they've just been threatened, if they keep speaking in the name of Jesus, consequences will happen. They pray for boldness. They're not saying, oh God, give us loud voices. Oh God, help us yell. No. Boldness is courage. You can be a quiet lion and a loud coward. If you're loud, be loud. If you're quiet, be quiet. It's not tied to boldness. Boldness is the courage to say what must be said, come what may. Remember, when the Apostle Paul talks about boldness, uh, he says, we were bold among you in our God, in the, the Thessalonian letter there. That's the same chapter where he tells us about that boldness. He was like a nursing mother, and he was like a father to his children. Remember, it's the Apostle Paul who teaches Timothy, uh, gently instruct those who oppose you. It takes boldness to still say what's true to someone who's opposing you. That's not tied to voice and tone of voice. So consider that. Think about it. Be loud. Be quiet. That, the question is, uh, how can you confront someone with the best opportunity for winning them? And what we're talking about is indirect speech. Now, um, our, uh, our Lord Jesus uh, uses this kind of speech. And uh, as we begin to think about that and see examples, I'll just use an example of indirect speech in a, in a public communication event. So I was talking about hypocrisy. I said, um, um, now, uh, for some of you, when you, you read this passage and uh, you, you're thinking to yourself, this is why I don't go to church. This is why I don't like church people, because they're hypocrites. My first move, you're absolutely right. Jesus in this passage is telling us about those who present themselves one way. They, put on a, they make the cup look clean on the outside, but inside they're dead men's bones. You know, inside they don't clean the cup. Or they look like a whitewashed tomb, but inside they're dead men's bones. You're right. Uh, Jesus takes up the same complaint long before you were born about hypocrisy among his people. Uh, it's not just in the church, move number two, is it? Where you see hypocrisy. I mean, if you, if you volunteered with Little League, or you go to your family reunion, or you, you think about politicians of some kinds, or you think about uh, uh, school board meetings, or you think about just the ability to be a hypocrite is outside of the church too, right? Third move, I've seen hypocrisy in my own life. I've been a hypocrite, acting contrary to what I know. I've been hypocritical in my life. I've needed to ask forgiveness for people. What's my next move? How about you? 
Now, in that moment, I'm trying to give pause or win. A person who's listening to me who's objecting, they have an objection to the faith on the basis of hypocrisy. If I go straight at them, well, you're a hypocrite too. Well, okay, that's over. Now we're just going to, what? Where does that get? What are we going to do now? Uh-uh, uh-huh. Uh-uh, uh-huh. <laughs> ah, why do I do that? I don't know. I'm still in eighth grade. I don't know. <laughs> Folly. Symbolism. Slow down. Listen, hypocrisy hurts. That person might be speaking out of pain. They may have wounds with church people. You're absolutely right. Jesus, hypocrisy, it's true. Outside the church too, isn't it? Now notice I'm asking questions. It's true, isn't it? Outside, I mean, you don't have to agree with me. We're all old enough here. Think of, you can think about it, right? Me, how about you? Have you seen that in your own life too? And so the indirect approach isn't weak. Uh, it's not less confrontational or less invitational. It's just wisely confrontational, wisely invitational, giving people room with their emotions and their thoughts so they can slow down. Yeah, I can see that. Outside of, okay, I guess I have to admit that. Yeah, maybe. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have. God talker, I'm sure you've been hypocrite. How about you? Hmm. So let's think about how our Lord uses uh, indirect speech. Just a few examples. Let's start with the wounded soul. The wounded soul. Uh, in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene is there at the tomb. Do you remember? She's weeping. Uh, and she can't find him. She's wanting to know where, the, where his body is. Beginning in verse 11 and following. Now what's remarkable about this is that while she's looking for the body, having encounter with angels, uh, wondering where they've taken him. The Lord Jesus is there the entire time. But he's quiet. It's the language of waiting, the language of nonverbal presence, the language of being with. He's with, but she doesn't know it. Why does he do that? I don't know. I don't know. But he waits before he reveals himself. He's with her the whole time. He's with her and present but silent. Uh, she makes contact with his provision, a clue to his provision that there's more than just her woundedness. Angels. It's not him. But it's part of his kingdom. It's kingdom stuff. She has an encounter with that. Then the Lord reveals himself. She doesn't know it's him. 
Now it's present contact, unveiled. She doesn't know it's him. She thinks he's a gardener. Sir, where have you taken him? I always love this. Uh, I've always, I, I don't know how big Mary Magdalene was, but she's just saying, look, you just tell me where he is, I'll go get him. <laughs> what a tenacious, tenacious heart <laughs> while Peter and John are hiding. Mary stood. Then intimacy. Mary. He just said her name. <gasps> There's something about the quality. I don't know what it's going to be like for you to hear your name spoken by the Lord. I can't wait. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be like. There must be some kind of quality to the shepherd who knows every sheep by name. And there must be something in the way he says our name that we didn't see him before, and now we see him. Intimacy for the wounded soul. And then instruction. Don't cling to me. Nothing mystical there. She's just got stuff to do. It's not like, I'm a ghost. Don't touch me. It's not like that. It's like, nope. No time to linger here. Go. Tell what you've seen. Right? So we see in there, the Lord, uh, I don't know why he waits. He just gives his presence hidden. His silence with her. Gives a clue to the kingdom, angels. Starts to walk with her. She doesn't know it's him. I think like that of my own self a lot of times. I, I don't even know. I wonder if, I don't even know. The Lord's like doing something. I don't know it's him. Uh, I think about that uh, time where uh, it's the middle of the night or something. And uh, the Lord Jesus is walking out on the water. And the disciples see him. And the first thing they say, I mean, they've been trained by him. They're being mentored by him, right? First thing they say, it's a ghost. <laughs> They're scared out of their mind. It's a ghost. And, uh, it's, and Jesus says, it's me. <laughs> and I thought, oh, how many times have I done that in my life, Lord? The thing you're doing, I think, is a ghost. It's scaring me to death. But it's you all along. You know? He gives that to her. Then he gives intimacy and instruction. The folks on the road to Emmaus, it's very similar. After the resurrection, the Lord is present with them, walking on the road. They make contact with God's provision. They have each other. They make contact with Him in a veiled way. He's walking with them, and they don't know it's Him. Their hearts are burning. There's some kind of clue going on. And then he acts like he's going to walk on. If you get a chance, read that again. Road to Emmaus. The Lord Jesus says, well, they don't recognize him yet. Well, it's been good hanging with you guys. I think I'm just going to go on. Indirect speech. No, no, stay. It draws us out. We, if he just says, hi, it's me. We don't have anything we have to do. We don't have to reflect on our heart in any way. We don't have to do any of that. But he walks veiled. Our hearts are burning. Something's going on. Something's more than this. Well, it's been good to be with you. Wait, wait, wait. Would you stay? Instead of, oh, okay, see you later. Would you stay? And then intimacy breaks bread. They can never see bread broken by him the same way again. 
breaks the bread, give thanks. It's him. Luke 7, final, uh, not the final in the Bible, but just final for today. Wounded soul. Luke chapter 7, the woman uh, who's washing her, his feet with her tears and wiping it with her hair, and the Pharisees are saying, uh, the foolish and scoffing soul are saying of the wounded soul, because remember that's what they do, they correct the wounded. They judge, rather than weeping with those who weep, they judge those who weep. Uh, they say, if you knew what sort this was, you know, you wouldn't receive her. <laughs> Man, the foolish hate all these stories. If you knew what sort this was, Simon, let me tell you a story. There was a moneylender. I mean, listen, uh, let's, uh, let's just get honest. As a full-grown adult, <laughs> if you continually went to a teacher and you said, hey, I was just wondering about the nature of sin. And that teacher said, once upon a time, wouldn't your reaction be, don't give me this fluff? And just asking, who's, who's taught us that? The Lord Jesus continually teaches. Now, he tells this parable about the one who's forgiven much and who's loved much, the one who owed a greater debt, right? Uh, I'm just going to read it because it's about one of the most beautiful things. I, I don't even know how to... The Lord's just so lovely. So he tells a story, verse 41, Luke 7, a certain moneylender had two debtors. So remember, the woman is hearing this. A certain moneylender had two debtors who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? We're going to see this with the fool. The Lord tells a story and asks a question about the story. Which of them will love them more? The one I suppose, he's him hauling around because he want to answer it. The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you have judged rightly. Notice verse 44, circle it, meditate on it for however long the rest of your life. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Can you picture that? Simon, let me tell you a story. Moneylender, you're right. The one who's been forgiven much. Now he's not looking at the, the foolish soul anymore. He's looking at her, the wounded soul. I'm imagining it's the first man that's ever looked at her in her life where she didn't feel undressed or used or consumed, leveraged, judged as a sort. What would that have been like just to have been seen by the pornless heart of the Savior. And then he says, do you see this woman? No, they don't. They just see a sort. Yeah. Do you see it? Simon, do you see this woman? Mm -hmm. If you're the wounded soul, 
you are right now being defended. Jesus isn't even looking at your accuser. He's talking to the accuser, but he's seeing you. She, I entered your house. You gave me nothing. The whole time he's looking at her, not him. Water from my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss from the time I came in. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. He's still looking at her. You did not anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, he's still looking at her. I tell you, she is forgiven for her sins. And now, for she loved much, he was forgiven little, loves little. Are you listening, Simon? Indirect. <laughs> Your sins are forgiven. Go. Foolish response. Who is this who thinks he can forgive sins? Scoff. The wounded soul is tender. It's tender. You know that if you've been in pain. Um, if you haven't suffered, can I gently say, would you let someone else talk first? In your family or in your workplace or in your ministry as a parent? It's not a criticism. Thanks be to God. In the providence of God, I have things to learn from you. Because you're not weighed down with the kind of cynicism and skepticism and pain and melancholy that I've got. And I need someone like you to remind me of the full-on promises of God. But I'm asking you, if you haven't suffered, please, please, admit you don't know what you're doing. And let someone else take the lead. Because a wounded soul needs tender approach. Job's friends to begin with. Not Job's friends, what they ended up trying to do. Right? Um, the tender approach. The simplistic soul. Uh, invitation. So remember we talked about consolation for the wounded soul. Invitation for the simplistic soul. It's just this thing where Jesus will say something like, <laughs> all right, he tells a parable, Mark chapter 4. It's the parable of the sower and the seed. And just imagine you're listening. And uh, Jesus says, listen, behold. Now the word behold means shh. <laughs> Stop what you're thinking, feeling, all that stuff. Give full attentiveness. Behold, right? Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Okay, another story. Ah, uh, another story. Indirect speech. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. 
And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, let's go. The Lord Jesus, unlike many of us, is not always explaining. And he does not always give the answers. He doesn't feel, fill silence with answers and explanations. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's not trying to control you now. He's not requiring anything of you. He set it out there. And now you're supposed to go, what? And thankfully, the disciples did. They come to him later and they say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Would you explain this? Can you imagine being in a situation in which you say a parable and then leave it unexplained. That requires patience, trust, a commitment to the long view, quick to listen, slow to speak, it gives the listener room to feel and think, soften and scratch their head. I'm a grown man. I've been fishing all my life. James, uh, hey Pete, do you have any idea what our Savior was just talking about? What the Master is getting at? I don't have any idea. Philip, hey Bart, Bartho hey Bartholomew, any clue what that was all about? No clue. All right. I think some, someone should ask him. Hey, Pete, you do it. I don't know. I don't know. Someone should ask him. Right? So these grown men, they all, they all go. <laughs> when he was alone, <laughs> verse 10, they're not humbling themselves enough in the presence of others, but, but they are going to go alone and they're going to ask him. And then he explains them the parable. Somebody once said uh, that explanations are more like buckets than wells. Uh, we're tempted to believe because we've explained something, we understand it. Or we've seen it, or we know it. The Pharisees really struggled with this. Uh, in St. Louis, we have a bird. It's called a cardinal. It's red. Uh, the female's gray. I don't know why the female's gray and the male is like bright red, but whatever that's about, I don't know. So there is. Cardinals are red or gray. That's a cardinal. I know everything there is to know about cardinals now. Uh-uh. No. Just because I can name a cardinal and identify its sort 
Doesn't mean I've seen it. Because this cardinal has a, chip, a, a, a clipped wing. I wonder why. It seems to have a little cut on its head. Hmm. I wonder what that was about. Which is more to the story. And so, this indirect speech of invitation, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Remember, the Lord Jesus is willing to say, I have more to say right now, but I don't think you could bear it. That is so unselfish. Unselfish. Oh, I got to say it because I feel it. No, no, no. No. Who are you talking to and what do they need? I have more to say to you, but not now. Invitation, silence, letting things linger, percolate. Our Lord Jesus with the woman at the well is another good example. The fool, confrontation. Confrontation. Let's just look at one example. Uh, Luke chapter 10, uh, the Good Samaritan. So I'll remind you of that. Remember... Um, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's not an actual question. It's a question designed to test or trap. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? See, I don't think I'd do that in a thousand years. If someone said, hey, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I'm off to the races with explanation and speech and talking and everything else. Jesus discerns who he's talking to. Fool, the question isn't real. It's designed to test and trap Jesus. So Jesus slows it all down. Hmm, I don't know, how do you read it? Now the person begins to talk. Well, I think if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. He's dealing with the fool, not the wounded. Not the invitation of the simplistic. Fool. Okay, you got it right. Good for you. What happens when we do that with a fool? He wants to justify himself. See, he's not talking to Jesus out of love. He's not talking to Jesus out of curiosity. He's not talking about Jesus because he wants to learn. He's talking to Jesus because he wants to trap him and he wants to justify himself. Jesus is slowing everything down. How do you read it? Yeah, you got it right. Good job. Pat on the back, gold star. And Jesus offers nothing else. It's like a text. Uh, uh, from a foolish person or a person in their folly. The texts come and you slow it down. How could you do whatever? What did you say? Perfectly chosen emoji. <laughs> and you wait two hours before you respond. Because this is a fool. Venting anger. Or you say, seems like you're having a hard time. Thanks for your text. What will happen? Mm -hmm. 
Why? Because they want a fight. And you're not giving it. And it exposes the fight in their heart. Disproportionate response. Why didn't you respond to me right away? Well, I was with my mom in the hospital. Well, I was getting my kids dinner. Well, I was driving. <laughs> but the fool has no category that you have a life, that there's something not connected to them. The fool only assumes you're intentionally whatever. They fight. So the Lord Jesus, there he is. He did great. I'm going to walk on. Now he tells a parable. <laughs> so he wants to justify himself. Uh, and who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a story about who the neighbor is. And then he asks the question, um, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Make no mistake, that is profoundly confrontational. Because Jesus just told a story with a Samaritan as the hero. And in a public setting, it's obvious from the story who the neighbor, the good neighbor is. And now this foolish man has to say out loud who the neighbor is. He has to do it. You see, Jesus could have said, and this is the neighbor. You are direct speech. Indirect speech. Story. Who's the neighbor? Well, I suppose it's the Samaritan. Mm -hmm. So indirect speech still confronts, but it slows everything down. It's willing to walk away, and it invites into a story in which the person has to find themselves. Finally, the scoffing soul, one quick example. It's just the Lord Jesus. Uh, one of them is um, in John chapter 18, where verses 19 and 23, they strike the Lord Jesus. Do you remember that? They hit him. And our Lord's response to the scoffer is, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I said is right, why do you strike me? That's a very kind, humble, bold thing to say. It's like um, the person who strikes you on the right cheek. You know, you always think, oh, turn the other cheek. And we have this picture of like being rolled over on a mat or something like you just. But no, no. It's more like the, you come up and you give the Lord Jesus your best shot on the side of the cheek. He goes like that. Okay. <laughs> that isn't weakness, dear friends. So he stands in the presence of the scoffer. He's not mean. He doesn't respond in kind. He doesn't strike them back. He doesn't react out of fury. If I've done something wrong, why don't we just talk about that? Why don't you just say what I've done wrong? 
if I haven't done anything wrong, why are you choosing violence? Um, he's present and disruptive, but he's not drawing upon the fruits of the flesh. He's naming what's going on and asking a disruptive question and waiting. Scoffer. All right. What we've been just trying to introduce ourselves today is this uh, wisdom way, uh, which is, seems to be the norm of our Lord Jesus, and uh, beginning to try to think about what it means to slow down our, our thoughts and our emotions. There's a lot more to say about how we do that, but what it feels like to do that so that we move with invitation or confrontation or consolation or boundary setting and excommunication, but we do that just as boldly, but more wisely. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your ministry to us, how you've been so patient to wait for us. We know you haven't explained everything all the time. We know that you've been present but quiet. We know you've given us clues. We know you've revealed yourself and we just didn't even know. And then we know you've shown us your intimacy and given us instruction and we thank you. Thank you for the way you've welcomed each of us. It's in your name we're giving thanks. Amen. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.